The following podcast contains explicit language. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the billionaire who gives less to charity than I do, Donald Trump. I'm not kidding. He gave less than $10,000 over the past seven years, according to the Washington Post. What a cheap bastard. I'm Jacob Weisberg, back in our comfy Brooklyn studio after our sojourn to Philadelphia. So one of the things that drives people like me crazy about Trump is his weird Velcro Teflon. He does and says so many outrageous and disqualifying things that no one of them ever seems to stick to him. There's always a new horror to make everybody forget about yesterday's horror. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton has one big liability, which is her private email server. And it never goes away because there's no just as bad story to take its place. So I want to suggest that we actually stick with a topic that is worse than all the others. Trump's relationship with the Kremlin. Here's what we know. Trump's positions on NATO, Crimea, and a range of other issues echo Vladimir Putin's views in a way that no American politician ever has. He has surrounded himself with advisors who are bought and paid for Putin flunkies. He's encouraged the Kremlin to engage in more cyber attacks to help him win. And he can't even keep his own story straight about whether he's met Putin personally. I actually did meet Putin one time myself. Believe me, it's not the kind of thing you forget. On today's show, a man who did what Trump won't do, represent America's interests to Russia. But first, let's do the tweets. The new joke in town is that Russia leaked the disastrous DNC emails, which should never have been written stupid because Putin likes me. In order to try and deflect the horror and stupidity of the WikiLeaks disaster, the Dems said maybe it is Russia dealing with Trump. Crazy. Funny how the failing New York Times is pushing Dem's narrative that Russia is working for me because Putin said Trump is a genius. For the record, I have zero investments in Russia. If Russia or any other country or person has Hillary Clinton's 33,000 illegally deleted emails, perhaps they should share them with the FBI. Michael McFall is the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Before that, he was on the National Security Council as President Obama's top Russian advisor. He's now back at Stanford, where he teaches political science and international studies. Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Donald Trump now says he was joking about encouraging Russia to hack Hillary's emails. Was he joking, do you think? Uh, It doesn't seem like it to me. The initial comment didn't sound like a joke. Uh, He then had a press conference, I think, the next day 
when he got into a pretty heated back and forth with one of the journalists, and he didn't in any moment in that discussion say, I was just joking, I was just sarcastic. It was only the day after. And, you know, we all make mistakes and we should correct them. You know, maybe say I made a mistake as opposed to I was being sarcastic would be better. But I got to tell you, you know, having talked to some of my friends, including in the former uh, people who used to work in the intelligence world, uh, those kind of jokes are deeply undermining for those people fighting our, you know, to preserve our security, including our, our security in the cyber world. So joke or not, it's a, it was an inappropriate joke. And most certainly, uh, if it wasn't a joke, uh, it needs to be it rolled back completely. I'm still reeling a little bit at the idea of, of Donald Trump saying I made a mistake. That, that'll, be a, <laughs> that'll be a hot day in Siberia when that happens. <laughs> True. Those are not words that come out of his mouth easily. So Ann Applebaum was on the show earlier this week, and she said this is par for the course in terms of what Russia does in meddling in European elections, not just in Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe, where they get up to all kinds of mischief. Is that your impression as well? Well, Ann is far more expert than I am on that subject, so I'm glad you had her on the program. Uh, most certainly, there is a... You know, I would call it a new strategy that the Kremlin has developed over the course of the last several years to not only just rebuff and constrain Democrats and Democratic ideas internally, but to begin to export uh, their ideas, their model of governance, and to support those that share their views. Um, and there are multiple dimensions to it, right? So the, the, the first one, of course, is media, where they have become, in my view, extremely effective and sophisticated through uh, platforms like Russia Today, RT as it's now called, to uh, get their message out, to delegitimate democratic leaders. Um, that's one part of it. Second, yes, they do now fund and, and finance uh, parties and non-governmental organizations in Europe and abroad, by the way, not just in Europe, but around the world, especially in Europe, however, of those parties and, and political figures that, that share their view of the world. Related to that, by the way, Jacob, is something interesting. They're big in supporting separatists separatist ideas. So the referendum in Scotland a couple of years ago, they were big on saying why that's important. Brexit, of course, they were big champions of. And that's because for two reasons. One, they say, well, you know, when folks vote in referenda to change the borders, that legitimates what they did uh, with Crimea. But two, of course, it also weakens Europe, and that is a security objective that Putin's had for a long time. And then two more instruments, I think it's important for people to remember. On occasion, not very often, but but on occasion, they use their military to disrupt democracies, new democracies in Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine in 2014. And then finally, this latest play uh, using cyber and using intelligence that they have gathered to impact the internal affairs of other countries that they let, you know, it's, we'll connect the dots if you want, but it seems pretty clear to me that they played a role in what happened in our country earlier this week. They've also done that from time to time in other countries. And so forget Democrats and Republicans for a minute. How do we respond at the governmental level to Russia committing a cyber attack with the apparent goal 
of interfering in our democratic process in an American presidential election? What's the proportionate or appropriate answer to that? Do we have do we hit them back with a cyber attack on them? Well, first of all, like all cyber stuff, it's always hard to make a response and to assign guilt because of the fuzziness of how you do attribution here, right? So in this particular case, well, let's back up. Russia has tremendous capacity in this domain. Uh, I think it's grossly underestimated by most security experts in America and, and the American people. They just don't understand both how easy it is to do this and what tremendous capability the Russians have. So that's the first contextual point. Second, you know, I think it's pretty, the evidence is overwhelming that Russian intelligence organizations were involved in the hacking of the DNC. Uh, we don't know if others were involved, by the way, that's an important point, but the, the forensics on that, I think, are clear. And then finally, just to, about what we're clear about, WikiLeaks most certainly decided to drop that data the day before the Democratic National Convention to impact our domestic affairs and our electoral process. By the way, WikiLeaks is also not an American organization, and Mr. Assange is, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know his status now, but used to be an Australian citizen. So even if there were no Russians, let's be clear, this was a foreign actor intervening in our democratic processes. The part that's a little bit confusing or will will always remain, I think, mysterious is did the Russians give the data to WikiLeaks? And that'll be confusing for a number of reasons. One, WikiLeaks won't reveal it. But two, you know, if I had to uh, guess, based on my deep experience with this back when I was in the government, uh, the Russians would have done this through intermediaries, right? So, so WikiLeaks might not even know that the Russians were involved. So all of that confusion makes it hard to have a direct response. And of course, the government in earlier instances uh, worries about an escalation tit-for-tat response with a major cyber power like Russia because you know, if the U.S. government responds uh, with a cyber attack on Russia in response, they most certainly can escalate. And I know that people in the Obama administration worry about that kind of escalation leading to some very bad consequences, both for Russia and the United States. So the previous week, Mike, Trump made some comments that were just as shocking and potentially far more dangerous about uh, NATO mutual defense agreement being more like a serving suggestion than something he would feel obligated to follow as president. How do you think that is being perceived by our NATO allies? And how is it how is that perceived in the Kremlin and by Putin? Well, with our NATO allies, uh, the the simple answer is with horror. Uh, there's just no other way to describe it. I mean, um, especially those uh, closest to Russia, of course. Uh, but you know, these kind of statements um, undermine our credible commitment to the alliance, and that, for their point of view, is destabilizing. Not because. Uh, you know, they're worried about the, the, the Russian Red Army marching to Tallinn, but because they worry that it might encourage uh, mischievous behavior by the Russians and by Russian, ethnic Russians, by the way, in their own countries. And I think they're absolutely right to be worried about that. We don't want there to be any doubt 
about our Article 5 commitments. That's what leads to instability. And that's what leads to conflict, by the way. I mean, Trump somehow thinks that he says that as a way to uh, say we're not going to go to war with Russia. But in fact, it's the ambiguity of our commitments that I think makes conflict maybe even unintended conflict, more likely. And with respect to Putin, I mean, is this a big green light in terms of his territorial ambitions in Crimea, elsewhere in, in the independent republics that were formerly part of the Soviet Union? Well, not yet, because uh, Mr. Trump is not president. Uh, but it most certainly just, you know, it's perfectly rational. There's no, there's no mystery to it. Trump says things that the Kremlin likes. Trump says many things that, in many ways, uh, support Putin's policies. Uh, just the other day when he said, we'll look into recognizing the annexation of Crimea. Uh, that, that's exactly what Putin wants uh, an American president to say. And, and let me just underscore, there's not a leader that I know of you know, in the democratic world that has said that. A hundred countries voted against that two years ago. Even the Chinese leaders have not recognized Russian annexation of Crimea. So Mr. Trump is really an outlier when he says things like that. What happens later, of course, that's, that's later. But, but most certainly, you know, just if I were working at the Russian Security Council, um, I would be, you know, rooting for Mr. Trump because of these things that he says. And it went farther than that. Trump asked for and got a weakening of the Republican platform plank on Crimea, right? I mean, not recognizing Russian dominance, but softening the idea that the United States might might help Crimea resist the occupation and the, the invasion. That's right. And in particular, you know, if you go back to the policy debate of two years ago, most Republicans, I think all Republicans that I can remember, you know, in the Senate, in the U.S. Congress, political, you know, former government officials were advocating to provide military assistance to Ukraine and were extremely critical of President Obama that he didn't do that. Uh, that was one of the things that, that Mr. Trump's people took out of the Republican platform. So you advised candidate Obama on Russia. Trump's advisor is someone named Carter Page, who happens also to be an advisor and investor in Gazprom, the enormous Russian energy company allied with the Kremlin. This is totally shocking, right, that someone advising a presidential campaign on this issue, in effect, is also working for the other side? Uh, I do think it raises lots of conflict of interest, to say the least, that one has business interests in Russia and then advises, you know, governments here about um, and candidates about what to do with Russia. Uh, you know, I myself have had a pretty firm line throughout, uh, you know, my time doing trying to jump back and forth between government and academia to not uh, be directly involved with businesses in Russia. Having said that, I do want to underscore that when I was in the government, it was my job to promote U.S.-Russian uh, business relations. Um, but then that, of course, ended after my time. But that, of course, ended after Russia's uh, annexation of Crimea and an intervention in eastern Ukraine, whereas government policy precisely not to do that. But what he does himself, I can't say. I can say that he did go to Russia and gave a big speech 
got a lot of attention in in, in Russia. Uh, he was described by the Russian press as a senior foreign policy advisor to Mr. Trump. And and what he said, of course, you know, I I personally disagree with things that that he was advocating there. And then there's Paul Manafort, who has been connected to a number of the Russian oligarchs and worked for Yanukovych in Ukraine when the Kremlin was supporting him against the democracy movement. I mean, it, isn't it just shocking that Trump has surrounded himself by these people with these kinds of ties to the Kremlin? Well, it's most certainly unique. It's most certainly... Uh, <laughs> You're a diplomat, I understand. But, you know, at some point, <laughs> at some point, even a diplomat's head starts to explode when he sees what's going on here. Well, with respect to, to Manafort, let, let me tell you exactly what I know. I've met him a couple of times in, in Ukraine. Actually, I want to be precise about this. I met him one time because he was working with Mr. Yanukovych, and, and I, I wasn't working there. I was writing, but you know, I was well aware of what he was doing and most certainly was working with somebody that my colleagues in Ukraine considered anti-democratic and paid handsomely for it. I think that's the real point about him. If I, you know, I think he did it as a hired gun, as a hired hand, and and whether he was there for ideological reasons, I question. But most certainly, uh, you know, he was working for the same candidate that Putin was supporting, right? But let's just be clear about that. And, and Putin was not just supporting him rhetorically. He was supporting him financially. Uh, he was supporting him, uh, you know, by undermining uh, the opposition in, in all sorts of ways. So he was very involved in a very uh, fierce fight for the future of Ukraine on the opposite side, I would say, from the forces of democracy. So you met Manafort one time. Trump has alternately claimed that he met Putin one time and never. Do you actually have a, a guess which is true? The latter, I think, is true. You think he's never met him? Yeah. Even though, I mean, I just I just saw the tape again yesterday or the day before where uh, because he appeared on 60 Minutes and Putin was on the next segment, he said, you know, madam, we got along very well. I, I just remind you and your listeners of that because Trump also loves to use that word, believe me, uh, uh, to punctuate his sentences. Well, here's a, just, I mean, it's maybe a trivial example, but he said he met uh, the president of Russia and now we've turned out that he never met him. So why should we believe him? Uh, and by the way, not to get petty, but uh, he also said yesterday Putin called him a genius. That's that's also not true. Uh, <laughs> you know, I went back and looked at the tape. That's not the word that that uh, President Putin used. What what is the correct translation of the term he used? Yarki uh, figura, as I remember, it's like a colorful figure. And I don't have it in front of me, but the, the geni is the word in Russian. Uh, that was not the word that he used. <laughs> it's closer to clown than genius, right? Uh, I'll let you interpret that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike, it's great talking to you. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by our undercover agent, Jason DeLeon. His boss at the Residenture is Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And his boss at Moscow Center is Andy Bowers, our chief content officer. But we just call him Carla. John Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
I hate to say it, but the Republican convention was far more interesting with a much more beautiful set than the Democratic convention.